0: You're listening to Stories Behind the Songs with Chris Blair. For more information, check out chrisblair.com. Hey, everybody. Here's another episode of Stories Behind the Songs. I'm your host, Chris Blair, and before I get started today, I just want to take a second and thank you guys for listening. This is the 14th episode of the Stories Behind the Songs podcast. Not a lot. We're still brand new. But I started this podcast as a passion project and it's still a passion project. But every week when I get to sit down with someone new and share their story, the stories that I've been hearing for years in Nashville that are so amazing, um, it just brings me so much joy to be able to share that with you guys. And thank you, thank you, thank you for listening and supporting this podcast, it means so much. Make sure you hit that like button, follow button, subscribe, uh, wherever you're listening to your podcast, uh, whatever that is. I can't tell you how much that helps and will keep us going. Um, Now, have you ever wondered how Luke Combs got to be known as Luke Combs? How he got to that success? You're gonna hear about that in the episode today when I sit down with Rob Williford. We're gonna talk about how Rob moved to Nashville and got his start in music, and then how he went on to meet Luke Combs, become his guitar player, and how they would drive show to show in a van and sometimes not even have a hotel or a place to stay. Um, But we'll talk about that backbone, that drive, that work ethic that Luke had um, along with Rob and the rest of that band and camp and how they grew that brand to where it is now. We're gonna talk about his love for information and learning especially about country music that led him to his love of songwriting. And then we're gonna talk about stories behind some of the songs that he's written for Luke, like One Number Away, Doing This, Nothing Like You. Um, He has got such incredible talent. Um, He's written eight songs for Luke. He's also written songs for Cameron Marlowe, Wheeler Walker. Um, He's gotten several awards. Song Song of the Year for the CMAs in 2019, ASCAP Song of the Year in 2018, NSAI Multi Platinum Songwriter Award. um, And then when we recorded this, uh, he had actually just received his uh, Grammy Award that day in the mail, which was really awesome. We're gonna go on and talk about his favorite band in the entire world, Matchbox 20. And how he ended up co-producing his newest project, Wildcard, with Kyle Cook. And now listen, if you have not heard Wildcard, go buy that album. Go support it and follow Rob and and get that album. It's so incredible. He recorded it at Fame Studios and Muscle Shills, and we're going to talk all about that. I have only known Rob for a couple years now but he is such a great dude and uh, I call him a friend. He's also my neighbor, lives right across the street and uh, this guy has just got so much talent and so many stories to share. I can't wait for you to hear this episode. Here is my friend Rob Williford. Hey, everybody, this is Chris Blair with another episode of Stories Behind the Songs, and today I am really far away from home, uh, right across the street, my buddy Rob Williford's home studio. Dude, thanks for doing this. This is, We've been talking about this for a while. Is this
1: the furthest that you've ever traveled?
0: This is by far. Yeah. yeah it was, and I, and I even brought the car. Perfect. <laughs> to, to come across the street, I brought the car. Man, um... Dude, let's just, let's go back, Uh, go back to the beginning. You're from North Carolina.
1: I'm from Gastonia, North Carolina, which is a little town outside of Charlotte. Okay. So walk me through, like, when did you know
0: that music was in your blood you had to do this?
1: I think as far back as I can remember, I begged my mom for a guitar when I was, like, 13 and didn't get a guitar until I was 14 because I had picked up the trumpet in sixth grade. And I didn't exactly stick with it. So Mom was like, no, I'm not getting you a guitar because you wouldn't keep with the trumpet. And so eventually I wore her down over about a year of begging. I think 14 I got my first guitar, really just because I thought it would be a cool way to get girls to notice me. Yeah. And uh, I went to a battle of the bands and saw a guy and then Caleb Davis from my hometown play uh, the solo of the Freebird behind his head. And I was like, man, that's that's pretty cool. You're hooked. I'm in. Yeah. So yeah, then I proceeded to butcher like Van Halen and Metallica solos in my parents' basement for the next like five years. Yeah. Did you have like one of the little mini little amps? Yeah, and I had the the uh, Fender Squire Pack. You know, that had that little amp with the gray button. Yeah, distortion. Yeah. And I always played with the button because like I didn't even know what a clean tone. Get that pick running down the streams and yeah, and yeah,
0: did yeah. It as loud as you could get it. Absolutely, yeah. So, uh, when when did you make the move to Nashville then?
1: I made the move when I was, uh, for the first time, 19. So I went to uh, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and dropped out after my freshman year. And I was in a band with two guys from my hometown, Brandon Carpenter and Austin Smith, and basically convinced them to load up with me and come out here. And yeah, so that would have been uh two thousand and five or six, something like that. Yeah. And that was the first go round. I moved here again in twenty thirteen. Okay. Okay. I didn't know that. So you you came and then you moved back? Yep. I was here for about three years and did like the Broadway thing. Yep. Um at that point like wasn't really aware of what a writer was or what a songwriter was. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to play covers on Broadway. And again, it was like, you mean I can get paid and get free alcohol? Yeah, I want to do this. And we did that for a couple of years and met some folks. And basically it just kind of came to like, okay, that was fun. Um, Then guys got married, had babies. And so I went back home and went back to school and went to work. Yeah. I held on to that for another three years. And finally, was just at a point of, in 2013, I was just lost. I mean, just miserable, but, like, kind of doing the thing that I thought at 25 I should be doing, I should be maturing and, like, wearing a tie to work kind of thing. Yeah. And I did for a minute. And then, like, on a Tuesday, man, I woke up, and I was like, all right, I'm I'm moving back. And then I did that day. Just moved back. No, it's 2013, Mm is We are coming up on the 10-year anniversary of that. Yeah. It was in, I believe, like early September. Okay.
0: So let's go back. Before you went back home,
1: uh, where were you playing on Broadway? It was it like in, all- Everywhere. We had like a normal gig at Tootsies. Yeah. And a regular gig at the second fiddle, Edges Corner. And the crazy thing, man, is like it ain't even that long ago, but like I remember parking right in front of the bar, mm-hmm. loading my app carried it into the bar plane, coming out and driving home. You can't even drive down there. No. Like, we would go down there, we probably couldn't even drive down there. Yeah. And, uh, so we did that, and, you know, kind of just, I worked at the movie theater, worked at Home Depot, I worked on, uh, the Showboat, the General Jackson, a lot of odd jobs, CVS, but I was playing anywhere, we were playing anywhere that would have us. Yeah. I remember we did a wedding one time, and I I was in charge of playing like the rehearsal thing where they come out now introducing Mr. and Mrs. and I butchered the name. Like I forgot their name. <laughs> So I wasn't cut out for that either. But it was fun.
0: Yeah, man, I my Broadway days, we've talked about this before, but yeah, like I uh, I played Tootsie's five nights a week mm. and uh the six to ten slot on the on the upstairs. And uh, yeah, I had I had a banker's job. So that I could work like the you know yeah. a nine to five and I'd get out and and I would I would pull into Tootsie's in the alley, park in the back, change out of my suit and tie and into into like stage clothes and go play play a show
1: and it's like it's and it was sat with a buddy of mine last week about this fairy thing, and he's also been uh a musician and songwriter for we're about the same age and he's done it for as long as I have, and we were just kind of talking about like isn't it wild to reminisce on, like, what you used to do? Even when I was early on playing with Luke, like, we were just driving from show to show, like, sometimes not having a hotel room. Yeah. And sometimes, like, sleeping in the van. I mean, not all the time, but there was a short window of time to where we were really rough in it. And I think back on that and a lot of those, like, Broadway and the bar digs and stuff like that, and I'm like, there's no part of me that can even remember having that much energy. I don't, know how, I don't know who that person was, but it's like they were on cocaine without being on cocaine. <laughs> but it was just the high of the pursuit of that thing and just loving the shit out of it. Yeah. And you didn't care what you had to do to do it. And that's what, I mean, that tune doing this, like that is truly like my love letter to that guy is, is that song of like, I can't believe he made it through that, but like, man, he really loved it. Yeah. You no, know, I think you have to. Cause you like changing out of your suit behind in the alleyway. It smells like piss and yeah, garbage. And that like, you just fired it, but you can't wait to get he, on stage. He'd wait. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So I get. I mean, it's that drive that you went back home, and in two thousand thirteen, you just had to come back.
1: I had to. Yeah, and I was still playing back home. Like I was playing guitar for some people. I was doing like every now and then my old band would play, or I'll do a solo thing, or just to kind of scratch the itch. Yeah. I remember watching, man, I think it was the CMAs in 2013 or ACMs or something. And I was just like, I was watching guys like Al Dean, Eric Church, Jared Neiman, Jay go and that kind of class. So mm-hmm. there, and I was like, man, like I was there when those guys were kind of cutting their teeth here, and I was angry about it. And then I had kind of like a, whatever you want to call it, an epiphany of like, the only reason I'm angry is because I'm, cynical and resentful that I'm not out there doing it and it was like a light bulb went off and I was like I have no one else to be mad at besides myself for my own unhappiness right and that has carried through my life fortunately to 36 now I still go like the one thing that you can't control is what you choose to do with your fucking life and man that's a hard thing for people to get it's a scary thing especially in the times we live at you know I I couldn't imagine, like, not knowing what it was that I wanted to put all my energy towards. But I figured that out at, like, 16. And I just haven't quite gotten to a point of waking up from that sort of dream.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I think it requires a bit of delusion.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, it requires a bit of, like... Delusion and crazy. Yeah, just you can't fathom doing anything else kind of deal. Yep. You know?
0: Yeah. I mean, I can't even tell you how many conversations I had with you know,
1: family, that's was like, you're going to do what? You know, like, I didn't even out. I didn't have those conversations. I just went. I was like, man, they're not going to get this. Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah. So when you moved here, uh, the second time in 2013, walk me through, like, what was the path? Did you uh, did you just go back to playing
1: Broadway? Did you When did you start writing? In that little gap of time, So, to backtrack a little bit, I was always the kid that, like... And and you understand this, like, I grew up in the era, like, if you wanted to get music, you had to buy the physical copy. Yeah. And with that, there were liner notes. And one of my favorite hobbies growing up, especially as a teenager, was reading. Where was it recorded? Who mixed it? Who mastered it? Who produced it? Who wrote the songs? Who played Zamboki or whatever on it? I wanted to know all that. Yeah. And I think part of that was because I was a nerd and I still am. I'm a bit of like, I just love information. I love learning about stuff. Yeah. But I also was, I had this real dream that now that I look back on it, it was kind of in its early stages of forming that was like, I, I understood, I had a grasp on the concept that those were the people that were in there making the cake. Like I kind of, it clicked with me that like, those are the creators. And I want to know who they are. And then I would Google them and I would look up their Wikipedia and I would read a book if they had a book or I just wanted to know everything about the history of specifically country music, which I ended up taking a class in at Carolina called the history of country music and it just poured gasoline on it. Mm. So by the time I had gotten here the second time, I fully understood what it meant, at least I thought I did, to be a songwriter versus an artist. And I had gone to school for just enough time to understand that a publishing deal was a record deal for a songwriter. Yeah. I was starting to read about intellectual property and copyrights and reading about people like Dean Dillon mm. and Hank Cochran and Willie Nelson. And I was just enamored. I was like, I've, that's it. it that's, I know for sure that's what I want to do. And so by that point, I would gotten back. I had no desire to go to Broadway. I did go to the Bluebird. I did go to every open mic and writers around in town to try to play original stuff. And that's when I really just, I mean, got fully obsessed with what it meant, the craft of writing lyric and melody. And that's, you yeah, know, that was a real turning point in my life. So from there, it was like I played those open mics for a while, kind of in an odd series of events, uh, about a year in while I was living here I got an offer for a publishing deal and that like you know in my mind at the time I was like well that's it I've made it like that was my dream all along was just to get a publishing deal and I did that Yeah. not knowing that the public deal that I got was it was a joke and uh, it would be something that would break my heart six months down the road but I found out it wasn't a real publishing deal mm. it was like it was ripped away from me in a way that That was the first time I really got my heart broken. Like, I had had my heart broken when I was 17. Um, But that's different. This was the first time I really had a first love, and it was music, and then it was given to me, and it was like, hi, just kidding. But during that time, I met this kid from Boone, North Carolina, through my high school science teacher, and then her son was at Appalachian State, and his roommate was Lou Combs. And she called me, and, again, just an odd serendipitous um occurrence that we both knew kind of some of the same people around where I'm from and I met him in twenty third thirteen or fourteen I can't remember Yeah, and that was you know looking back on it now I don't think I've had enough time to step away from it and and think about how like whatever you want to call it a god thing and universe thing it was I knew that I wanted to pursue something so desperately that I had put myself in a place, a location in space and time that the two of us would collide at that moment. And from there, it was like nothing was more clear to me. Nothing made more sense to me than to, like, okay, he's got this unbelievable artistic voice. He's got this thing that's like, when you just know, you know. And I'm like, Wow, if we can kind of start doing these original songs the way that I've been trying to be out here, like, learn about songwriting. And he very quickly fell in love with songwriting. And that's kind of rare. It's extremely rare for the artist of that kind of talent and also how young he was, and he just started playing guitar, to, like, really buy into what it meant to write, like, the best song that you can, to move people. And I think because his journey started there, And me aside, it could have been with anybody. He met people like Grey Fulcher, James McNair that were really important and he got a handle on, okay, if I can use my voice to convey these emotions through these lyrics and melodies, people will come and watch this and be moved by it. Yeah, and It will be impactful. And I think that's how, in my own arrogant opinion, how country music should start. There should be at the very rock bottom foundation of it just a really great song that didn't have to be one you wrote that should be the thing that everything should branch off of Mm. and it seems like a little bit of a lost art now here and town. yeah or maybe i just feel that way because i'm old i don't know well you are but for sure
0: i i can say that because i'm way older this episode is brought to you by sennheiser microphones when we first started this podcast We were using some older microphones and Sennheiser came in and sponsored us and gave us some MK4s and 914s. And I mean, I'm telling you, it's made all of the difference in the world. We love these microphones. We use them at the listening room as well. And I just can't say enough great things about them. Go check out Sennheiser.com. If you are into music in any way, their microphones are hands down the best on the planet. Go check them out, Sennheiser.com. And thank you, Sennheiser, for the support and the sponsorship. We love y'all. So, um, man, I love that. So, when you guys started getting together and, and you know, he was falling in love with writing and mm. you guys are doing this, um, did, you, did you have any of the songs already written? Or was it, was it pretty much like moving forward, like everything that you guys were doing is together?
1: When I met him, he had written, like that first EP, he had written the songs like Let the Moon Shine and Sheriff and The Way She Rides. Um, we started writing as that thing was being recorded. And I would say like some of the early stuff, like One Number Away, I think, was one of the first songs that we wrote that I was like, okay, things are kind of clicking here. Mm-hmm. There's a sense of, like, chemistry in the, in the writing. and But other than that, no, it, nothing was really there yet. And, I mean, he wrote that. The thing that a lot of people don't know that, like, Luke should get a lot of credit for is that he came to town, and I remember playing with him before he lived here and kind of, like, in a, in a way, pleading with him to, like, hey, please, just... He was killed in North Carolina. You know, just he's putting people in bars, and, like, he's that local, cliche, big fish, small pond thing. But I'm like, I've kind of been there, not in that way, but, like, I've, you know, seen what that does, and, like, it's a nice step, but if you stay there too long, you can get really complacent and kind of miss that window, I think, of opportunity. And it's all about what you want to do. But I was like, if you really want to do this, and he was always, like, mile long backbone in the ground like no I want to be Garth Brooks it was never like is none of that it was like no I want to be the guy and again that's another thing that like you gotta have that yep and I was like hey you gotta move and then he moved to town and like he spent that first year maybe a little longer doing nothing but writing songs and we we would do like little one off things and, or whatever but like He saved up enough money to at least buy him a year to, like, write songs. And he wrote that first record, the majority of it, in that year. Mm. And I think that was just important, again, of establishing, like, okay, there it is. There's the voice. Yep. There's the thing. And from there, you know, by the time the record deal happened, there was a big pile of songs. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So, um,
0: all right, let's talk about that first number one,
1: mm. cool. Uh, one number away, yeah. That was I think, man, I'm terrible with time. But I think it was 2017 that it went number one. Well, we wrote it in like 20 February of 2015. Okay. The only reason I remember that is because I went to Panama City for the first time ever in 2015, and we had the demo done. And you know, I like got there on a Sunday. By the time we left on the following Saturday that entire condo in, in uh, Pamela City knew that song. And it was the first time that I'd ever like seen that sort of wildfire bro from like I played it on the beach and then I played it drunk in the hot tub in the middle of the- <laughs> and it people were like, send me that demo. And then, which I'm looking back on it, I never should have been emailing that. But I was just left and right it was just like, which ultimately is why I had to change my number. But I was just like, yeah, I was texting this guy and this guy and like the last night, man, we had like 200 people in this little condo room. And I remember, like, people are just on the sink. God, I want to... just had the spray wood from the scene just spraying it everywhere. It was awesome. Yeah, it was rock and roll. But, like, that was the first time I gotten to watch sort of something from its inception. Then that was 2015. Then it's gets the deal. The crazy thing about that song is that by the time they went to record it, I went in there when they recorded it the first time. It didn't make the record. They didn't, really, they didn't get it right. And there were a lot of people... I don't say it, names. There were a lot of people... on the... the people that make the decisions about the money that didn't think it fit the record. And it, it really does it sonically. It kind of pokes out. I love that. And Luke believed in it, and... um. They went back in and re-recorded it with the guy, uh, Sammy Mitchell, that did the demo. And they got it right. And then it was like, then it became, okay, it was on the record. And then it was like, I was told it was gonna be the second single. And after Hurricane went number one, I was like, cool, I'm gonna have a song on the radio. And then it was, go to of Force. Because we had gone to Key West, which I just got back from. Yep. In 2016, and all those PDs down there heard what it rains of pores, and they are like, we got to have that guy. And so then again, I got my you know, first glimpse into the way this thing works, up, yep. understanding about disappointment and how impossible it is. Even then, I got a real dose of reality of like, you never know. You really never know. And obviously, Lou made the right decision. One Over Wade came out as the third single. And uh, I remember we played the Ryman for something like a week before it went number one, and it was sitting at two. And we were back there, and I remember it was Devin Dawson. And he looked at Devin Dawson, and he goes, wouldn't that be something that this thing styled out one number away? <laughs> and I'm like, you can what? In the world, ate that joke? Because you've had now two number ones, but, like, that's really evil. Yeah. So luckily it didn't. Oh, yeah.
0: So did you call him as soon as it went number one?
1: He called me. Yeah. Yeah. It was a big, good. <laughs> That's one of those that, you know, just will always be special because it was like, man, I must have called everybody I knew. Yeah. because I mean, it was just like the anticipation of having to, you know, we played that song the first time in like 2015 in front of like 48 people. Yeah. So to see it get all the way to the radio and by that point we were playing like in Australia and places like that and to hear thousands, tens of thousands of people yeah. singing these lyrics, it's like, there is no more fulfilling uh, full circle thing for a creator right and so it was just a very surreal uh, cool thing to be a part of
0: so and then they they just kind of poured out after that I mean you had you had a lot of them back to back so um you know what is there is there any that you're the most proud of mm.
1: that's impossible for me I would say the one that I'm the most emotionally attached to is doing this just because of like the story and like I mean every word of that is pure biographical storyline and it's like again it's like my little love letter to the to the guy that like wanted to do this to begin with and it's like kind of the north star of sometimes man it's easy to get distracted by like the human nature to want external validation and if you get one number, one, you want two. And then you want three. And if you're with a man you were went a CMA. And I'm sure this sort of pursuit of, like, the next thing is only, again, yeah, it's, it's a human thing, I think. But, like, sometimes i got to be reminded that, like, old 19-year-old version of me that moved here would whoop my ass and go, like, dude, have some gratitude. Like, take a moment. Take a moment. Chill out. Maybe be a little grateful for, like, all of this and that song I think is kind of my my reminder of that so I think I'm the most attached to that Who you wrote that was Drew Parker and Luke okay yeah Drew yeah essentially coincidentally today which is I don't know if you can see it it's hanging up by the sorry we're stoned yep I got my Grammy medal yeah today in the mail you got that today today wow yeah I figured that was a fitting place that's uh in the matter of see. Well, that's right yeah yeah and actually, I remember the day we wrote it was May 20th, three years ago. So,
0: take me into the writer's
1: room. Uh... That's, uh, that's a heavy day. It was during COVID. Um, and we'd been working on the song, Me, Him, and Drew. And it was called, uh, I believe, I Have a Dream. It was kind of the tie we were messing with. And and me, Luke, and Drew have done this with a couple different songs, like uh, that song, Nothing Like You, I believe we wrote it seven times. Mm. And and I'm okay with that. I love that. I love that both those guys, like, that's a trust. You know, that's a trust involved in knowing that you want. Everyone's on the same team, and you want the best possible song. Yeah. Sometimes that's tough to find. And so we did work on this tune, and it wasn't just, it wasn't, like, landing in the way that, the concept was the same. It was like, I always had this thing despite any of the validation. And, like, it kicked out of the point where Luke was frustrated. And he was like, I just don't feel like, or maybe it was I said it. I was like, I just don't feel like that's something you would say. And it kind of got to this impasse of Luke at a moment of, I don't know what it was. He was just kind of, well, man, they always ask in interviews what I'll be doing. Oh, I'm doing this. And it was just like, wow, oh, the big true. I'm just it was I mean, there it was. And then the lick was there and um and we were off. Yeah. And it became like just tell the story of, of what happened. And again, that's one of those that like I'm I'm pretty hippie about some things and like writing is one of those things that inspiration cannot be. You, it's like thinking about going to sleep. You can't fake and then make yourself fall asleep by thinking about it. It's the absence of thought that allows you to then shut your brain off and go night-night. But, like, inspiration, you just have to be open to that, that portal moment of, like, oh, there it is, and it's bigger than you. It's bigger than me, it's bigger than Luke, it's bigger than any of that shit. Because, like, when that moment happens, then you just have to get out of your own way and, like, let it... If it's right, like, my thing is if it moves me, as at the end of the day I'm just a fan of music, and I'm really a big fan of country music, but like, if it hits me, then I I think it will hit, hopefully someone else in a a like way. And so, you know, that was one of those things that like, when it happened, we kind of wrestled this thing and thought about it and tried to be clever and more hit songwriters of whatever room. Once we kind of like had hit the brick wall it then and there it was. Yeah. I think, you know, you don't get a lot of those, but, like, I'm learning more and more. The more I do this, that, like, those are the moments that you have to really be patient for in any attempt at, like, manufacturing it. I can't do it. I can't do it on a Tuesday at 11 a.m. just with some random two guys I've never met. That becomes an exercise in puzzle pieces and, and it requires brain power and there's a lot of people I think that have like a sharpened axe of they've written enough songs that they got a tool belt that they know if we need to do this we do this I'm sure I can't do that I am I have to be like fully overwhelmed with some spiritual moment of like and again every song can't be that yeah and that's what stuff is fitting yeah. when okay sometimes you just gotta go Ed Sheeran says it best you turn on a faucet that hasn't been running in a long time the water comes out dirty you gotta get that dirty water in the form of like those songs out so you can get to the mind the good ones yeah and then occasionally something comes along that you're like wow magical that's magical yeah 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 i think
0: i think that's what i love about like you know you're the songs that you've written um and i mean what what do you have now eight nine no oh, cuds for with luke oh
1: i don't know i really don't know
0: uh yeah, uh, it. But the the thing that like, I mean, that that moment where that brought the two of you together, like, I mean, yeah, changed changed both of your lives. You know, I I think like just looking at knowing music the way that that I do and and how I followed it through the years, like, I don't know that Luke would be Luke without you, and the other McNair and people that has has been in his camp and like it's just a special moment for everybody, I think. But I think the thing that makes it special is, like, what you're talking about. Like, there's those writer's rooms that I've been in where it's like, okay, let's write a song, and it's just, it's like, okay, you walk out of there and go, okay, well, that's that's never going to be played anywhere. And then there's those House. Yeah. Then there's those ones that you write and rewrite and you overthink because there's something there. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's... When when you listen to those songs, it's not like all the other crap. And I'm not saying that it's all crap on the radio, but like there's just, there's a lot of stuff I think, out there, you know?
1: And then. I mean, that doesn't help my, that doesn't help my chance of getting cuts. I know that. But like, yeah, I worry about like, I'm going to go off on those tangents. I think it's a lot of like, it's nobody's fault, but like our attention spans. Again, we've rapidly moved from what I was talking about with, it started out as a kid, it was tape, and then I got seemed to Yeah, I had an MP3 player, and then an iPod, uh, then iTunes, and now everybody's on Spotify, or everybody's on uh, Apple Music, or, you know, it's just the convenience of it's right there, but at the same time, there's so much access, and there's the volume of the music yeah. is at an all-time high. And I think because of that, just personally, I don't, you know, I don't know if anybody else feels this way, but I feel that, that that has sort of a trickle down effect in the quality of the music being made.
0: Yeah, 100%. You could, because I mean, anybody can sit in front of microphones like we're doing right now and get on two core and have a song on the radio in 30 seconds. Yeah. And they don't need a label. They don't need it. You know, it's like, and that's, yeah, that's good
1: in that too. Yeah. 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 There's a lot of like, for all the things that I really, have a bad taste in my mouth about the music industry and not just Nashville. The things that I've witnessed, that I've experienced, that I think are sort of give the industry um, a deserved bad reputation, a lot of that has given power to the creator in a way that I think it's healthy in most regard. However, there's also the flip side of the coin that like, now people, you know, would you rather put it in the microwave or would you rather put it over like a wood burning stove? <laughs> you know? I get it. There's some kind of middle ground here, but I think, you know, overall I learned this really the hard way when I went and made this record. Because I had a preconceived notion of I had done a little recording, I'd been in the studio, but I until I like it was something that was part of what I was attaching my name to it became clear to me that, like, the peop- there's a couple approaches to making records now. And the one that I see, unfortunately, happen a lot in this town is it happens on, like, a calendar. Apple's on schedule. Like, they have the songs by this date. They, they track it by this date. They master it by this date, and they release it by this date. And that's okay. Like, that's a business model. Not here to argue about that. I am here to question... Was that really the best debut record that kid could have put out? Right. If, if you think so, if you can stand behind that as a record exec, good on you. I just, I think that with the things like TikTok and the viral moments and trying to, again, I get that the music business, the point is to exploit the art. But like when people are sort of chasing the ambulance yeah. of the next viral kid and then they thrust him onto the scene with his viral thing with nothing behind it let me know how many tickets that artist is going to sell in five years. They don't care. Because yeah, it's just a churn it out, baby. Churn it out. And I just, that thing has really enabled me to go, that's just not what I do. And I'm okay with that. Yeah. You know, again, it doesn't make me the most popular co-writer. They're not typing away trying to get me in rooms uh, on Music Grove. And that's okay. But it does make me go, hey, anything that has My name in the liner note, I'm really proud of. Yep. And I took the time to pour my energy and my passion and my soul and my emotion into this song. Yeah. Whether it's a Witter, Walker, God, or whatever song of the year, it doesn't matter. But I really care about the craft of it, and I really care about the art of it, and I'm proud of that. Yep. You should be, man. You write great songs. Thanks. Appreciate that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, um, yeah, the it, it's also the the grind that, like, spinning on Broadway, playing, you know, going back to, like, when you first came here, you know, at least for me, like, you know, and a lot of friends that I've got that, you know, are now accepting awards as artists, you know, like, they didn't, they weren't, the, the TikTok and all that stuff wasn't around. Like, they they grinded on Broadway, they got, they, they learned how to listen and get tight with a band. They learned how to write great songs that were going to, couldn't add
1: So, like, I don't know if I ever learned how to be tight with a band, but, yeah, no, it's part of it. Yeah. So,
0: you know, it's, it's, it's sad in a way, because I've also seen the other, you know, I've got friends that, you know, have also been this TikTok, you know, stuff, and yeah, he's fine. like, blow up on this one song, you know, and then, and, and it's like, they, they have, no stage presence. They don't know what they're doing. That, you know, and it's like, they've got talent. They could do something, but it's just happened so fast,
1: and it's not the right song. Make the money off of it, and the right that, like, capitalize on that moment or we'll lose it. In a flip side, I see this a lot with, like, one thing I really had a problem with was in... Because, in, like, I moved to town wanting to be a country songwriter, and so I watched all the people doing the thing, and then I was like, well, I'll just go do that thing. And one of the things I got really disgruntled with and why I just bought a house in Muscle Shoals and I'm doing all and stuff out of fame down there yeah. is because I would get in a room and we would write this thing and I would really, like, work so hard on it and then, you know, would get a work tape and, like, would get a good take and everybody's fired up about it. And it's like, this is great. And then a couple months ago go by. Usually I was the guy annoying the co-writers like, who's gonna demo this? And I learned quickly, like, I was in the very small percentile that wanted to like go pursue moving that football down the field of taking it from our iPhone voice memo to like, and I'd seen this with Luke, I know it's possible, but like I watched a lot of momentum die because people would, whether it was a label or whoever would court the artist for just long enough. And then it would, by that time, by the time it was time for music to come out, they had reinvented the wheel. And that song may or may not have fallen through the cracks. And I'm like, Mm. you want to capitalize on the momentum now when it's a viral moment. You should have that same approach to when a kid walks in something and he sits down with a guitar and he plays you this song and it stops traffic and it shuts up people. And you are moved by it. That's it. Like, there's a lot of this sort of overthinking, I think, that goes in this think tank of like we've got to figure out is the metadata there before we can use this no the thing again to start with is the emotion of the song and is is the artist singing it like you know when I wake up in the morning I don't think about how I say good morning I think when an artist understands like what their voice is or their sound you know it's a very amorphous term around here but it's that They don't think about the lyric and the melody. They just deliver it in a way that's uniquely them. It doesn't sound a little like Morgan Wall. It doesn't sound a little like Luke Combs. It sounds 100% like that guy or girl. Yep. And you can't teach it. Yep. But life. When I see people do that, and then these great songs sort of never, they're sitting on the goal, but then it takes so long for the momentum and just gets fizzled out. It's why I'm going to go down to fame and sort of, Reinvent, if you will, at least my approach for my own sanity and for my own devotion to the passion of this thing that I do for a living. I want to go and, you know, I'm not going to wait on a guy to tell me that it made the record. Yeah. I'm just going to go record it if I believe in it. Yeah. And if it moves me. I want to
0: get there. I want to get to Muscle Shows because you've got a great story there and I want to, I want to be able to make sure everybody hears that. But let's, before we get there, let's, uh i'm gonna i'm gonna call you out because you said that you've never figured out how to how to be tight with a band and i'm Mm -hmm. I'm gonna call bs on that because you started with luke from the very beginning and you were with him from then until just last december so you obviously know what you're doing and uh and you've played all around the world so let's walk through that journey and how it was to be guitar player for
1: luke ohms i think two things one I never figured it out. I was just lucky enough to have a very loyal friend in Luke and I was smart enough to hire people that play a lot better than me. And luckily I got to hire like buddies like Kurt, guys like Tyler King, you know, Matt Maxwell, Jake Summers has been there. He's never missed a show on drums. We got Corey on keys who I met at the local playing one night. Like all these guys, Dustin Nunley um, and now Jamie Davis, his buddy took my spot I will make sure didn't leave anybody out. They leave anybody out? God, I hope not. I don't get to talk until if I did. But like all those guys were just guys that like, I watched play and I was like, man, they're really good. And they're good hang and they're good people. Yeah. As far as my ability to like play that level, that's a pure pipe dream that I have any kind of chops to do that. I think what I was able to do is like stay in my lane and try to play good meat and potatoes rhythm And kind of act like an idiot on a stage. I love performing. Yeah. And that's where the whole moniker, Rally Rob, made people meet me and they're like, you're not really that (laughs) rally. Like, well, at one point I was, but also like, that's a stage persona. Yeah. Uh Yeah. And that's just like when Chief puts on the aviators, that's Mary Church is a business major. Yeah. Chief is a fucking rock star. So I really fell into that part of it. As far as the playing goes, you know, I accepted at an early point, I was never going to be a shredder. That's okay because I like to use the guitars and extension to like write a song. Hmm. Yeah. And, and Luke again was very loyal to like, let me sort of not only stay on, but like steer that ship as far as the band. And we were always big on the live show. Like we wanted that live show to be every member of the band feeling like a member of the band instead of the artist standing way out front and the guys are back there, you don't know who they are and they're kind of in the shadows and could be a different guy tomorrow. It, look at i agreed read 100% that that was not what we ever wanted and something I'm proud of and I know that he's still doing this. Like we never ever ran a track during show, which we learned as we got further into it that like that's kind of not the common thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I think it it kind of just The way it happened, you know, any other artist at that level, I never would have been playing on that stage. But, you know, we kind of built the band in a way that supported the live show as being its own thing. I'm grateful for that.
0: You've told me this story before, but pretend I don't know anything. So uh, where'd Waffle House come from? Mm.
1: Man, that came from uh, my grandfather. He uh, would take me to Waffle House when I was really young, like three, four. I would spend my summers at my grandparents, and uh, we'd go get my grandmother coffee real early in the morning. And that kind of, the love of Waffle House carried into, you know, my teenage years and my 20s of, you know, a couple different times you go to Waffle House. When I was young, it was, you know, to go get breakfast with my papa and get grandma and coffee. In my teens and in my 20s, it was two,
0: three (laughs) yes
1: drunk and you want that all-star special or yep. pork chop and eggs. Smothered, right? covered. Smothered covered. And so it kind of always followed me and then I got that hat and started wearing that hat and I don't know, the hat's way more popular than I ever was. <laughs> I think I saw a couple people with the show at uh, Nissan and they're like, where's that? You know, like I've done something wrong. Yeah. Not like, hey, how's it going after leaving the band? Where's the fucking hat?
0: Man? Yeah. Speaking of Nissan, I, uh, I got to mention, um, just want to give you a shout out again. Uh, Luke played Nissan, um, back home here in Nashville. Um, and I was out mowing the lawn and you came over and was like, Hey man, you want to go, uh, you want to go hang at the, at the concert tonight. And, um, my, my daughter, my oldest daughter, that was her first ever concert. That she got to see, and she'll never forget that. We got, to, I got to take her to see that and and experience her first concert in that arena and, and that energy and all that. And I, I can't, Campbell, can't thank you enough. It's really cool. That's really awesome. Yeah. All right. So um, before we before we move on, uh, l- let's. Is there any like y- you've you've gotten so many opportunities um, while you were out on the road. Are there any good stories or uh, like the
1: like a favorite place that you went to? Oh man, I have a couple in the U.S. I'm just gonna rattle them off. Obviously, Red Rocks. I love Fort Worth, Texas. I love Billy Bob's. Yeah, my hat. I think I'm wearing it. Yeah, Cowboy Joe's, Charlotte, North Carolina. The Madison Square Garden was pretty epic. Um, but I said Guilford, New Hampshire. Uh, Kansas City, big fad. Um, I think I hit all, those are kind of, I really love playing in Michigan. Um, as far as like globally, uh, I think my favorite place was Sydney, Australia. Mm. It's just a pretty magical place. Yeah. Um, but again, there's like so many different, like, I, there's no way to even begin to go back through all of them, one of the shows in particular that I was really, really grateful to have still been with the band, and the heart of it was the show in Boone, which was uh, maybe September twenty one or twenty two. I don't know. I'm yeah, I'm bad with time. But Luke going back to at state and playing the football stadium in Boone was man. I bet and that was like a one of one set list to where like. It was like a two-hour, a little over two-hour show, and we, like, never did that, those songs like that. So that one was probably up there. That's cool. Very special. Mm.
0: All right, let's move on and uh, talk to me a little bit about Matchbox 20. You mean my favorite band of all time? Is it? I didn't know that. I was just throwing a band out. Yeah,
1: man, So my name, and if you were to ask my mother what her oldest son's name is, she would tell you Robert Steven Williford. I started going by Rob, which she really refuses, and most people do that know me from back home. I started going by Rob in like eighth grade because of Rob Thomas. And my buddy that had a guitar when I didn't have a guitar, he would play that yourself or someone like you album. And songs like Bent, and, or no, Bent's not on the record, but like songs like Cody and Real World and that whole record, top to bottom. I would just listen to it over and over and over. I had it like, I remember I had that. I had a Smash Mouth, I had Britney Spears. Um, I had like the, there was like three or four of like the CDs that I had that I'd carry around with my Walkman. And so like I knew that whole record. And then as I got over, like I got way into 90s rock. Mm. Real big fan, obviously, Matchbox, Jim Blossoms, Goo Goo Dolls, yeah, which kind of then segued in, like a a big Hootie and the Blowfish fan, uh, Counting Crows. Then into the, like, 2000s, I got into, you know, Blake 182, I was a big Green Day fan. Loved pop punk. Yeah. I loved Hoobastack, you know. Um, All of that stuff kind of started with, like, my 90s rock obsession. I think if I had to pick a favorite, you know, the Stranded on a Desert Island thing, I would probably take a 90s rock album. And so, you know, I I think that looking back on it now, like, that really pokes out in uh, a song like uh, The Other Guy, the Luke Tam. Mm-hmm. Like, I can, going back to that, I really hear, like, the almost, like, Goo Dolls Irish thing happening. and didn't even know, like, the, how that was shaping the writing, but, um yeah that's that's my favorite band
0: yeah so you uh you retired from luke in december of last year and then and um you had this passion project that you've been wanting to do for years and years so said that we're going to come back to muscle Shoals. so we're back and um i love you know the documentary that you put out and uh and you talked about what you were just talking about a while ago is that you just, you, you said in there, I think like, I wanted to get the hell out of Dodge. Like you wanted to get out of Nashville and you, get to, yeah. and, you and, and just be alone with your thoughts and like, um, and all that. So you, um, walk me through like, you know, that, that, uh, those meetings that, you know, were your love of Matchbox 20 and what you, had envisioned of what you wanted this
1: passion project to turn out to, ended up you working with Kyle. Uh, I've been talking about doing this record thing for like a couple of years, and only because the guys that I sort of idolize um, are guys like Tony Lane, um, or guys like Travis Meadows or Jonathan Singleton, but like these writers, and it's kind of we were talking about James Taylor. There's yeah, stuff like that too that's sort of a genreless. But I really had listened to a couple of these records by writers here in town that I was like, man, that'd be so cool. If something COVID happened and we came off the road in 2020, I was like, all right, well, I got no excuse now. Like, it's time. If you're going to do it, like, you better figure it out. And that's really why I built the studio, because I wanted to get into sort of not only the riding part but like the recording of it I was very fascinated by and so I'd kind of been contemplating this all of COVID and then it was our first show back after 14 months and it was in June of 2021 and I remember because we played Marble Beach and I came back and I got in my truck we did a bus call at Walmart and Mount Juliet which was super sweet because I was living out here yelling it was awesome um, and I got in my truck and I cranked it up and it was the top of the Mashbox 20 song "Bent" and there's a guitar lick and I came home and I listened to the lick again and I'm like, oh man, that's so cool and it was like a little light bulb went off I'm like, man, I think that guy lives here I think Kyle Cook lives in Nashville I've run into him at Red Door years ago it was too kind of chicken shit to really talk to him and so I hit up Ben Long in Word Chapel and I just said, hey man I got a wild idea. I want to do a record. Do you know Lucopo? He did. And we got connected. We got lunch a couple weeks later. And like an hour after lunch, we were in the studio kind of jamming. And I'm like sitting there jamming on the the SG that he played 3 a.m. on. no. And I'm having sort of this moment of trying to just take this in. Yeah. And I kind of just rattled off in a nonchalant way. I was like, hey, man, do you want to like produce a record with me? <laughs> He's like... Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I played, the stars had to have a line where, like, you know, Matchbox wasn't touring. The guy just, I don't know, man. It just, the timing of it was so beyond anything that I had to do with it, like, yeah. And then we were off to the, I, he came over here. I played him a ton of songs, and I was just like, hey, dude, be, like, really brutally honest with me. When I play you this song, my shitty playing and singing, if it hits you, tell me why. If it doesn't, tell me why not. And just be ruthless about it. Yeah. And so then we whittled at the tennis songs and I wanted to do this thing with David Mescon who goes by Messi. Yeah. I did writing with him a lot. And he and he comes from like the hip hop world. Yeah. Much more pop sensibility to his approach of writing and recording, but I love that. You know, it's the same reason that I love pop music. I'm a huge Mac Miller fan. I love Jack Carlo. I listen to, like, a lot of stuff that is on the other end of, like... I love Keith Whitley. I have a whole corner of him over here in my studio. He's my favorite country singer, but, like, I listen to everything. And I, and I have things about every genre that I really love. So I wanted him to be a part of, like, what I love about Coast Malone record. And I wanted Kyle to be the part of, like, what I love about Matchbox. And then I just wanted to bring these country songs in... It sort of had this one of my favorite records is Incubus uh, what is it Morning Drive Morning View uh, but like the stuff on that record is so to me sonically lyrically production wise it's so unique that I wanted to make something that was not quite a songwriter record but not, co- not quite country not quite 90s rock but just like hey here are these songs and here's how I want to invent them and bring them to life yeah and, like, man, I thought I knew what we were going to do going into it, and I couldn't have been more wrong about the songs, and I couldn't have been more wrong about the arrangements. And a lot of that was Cobb. Like, for example, I played him a song called I Ain't that I wrote um, that was, like, just a very simple songwriter, boring melody. It was in my wheelhouse of being able to deliver it, but, like, there was no risk involved. And I really loved the lyric. And I played it for him and he was like, for And I'm like, all right, man. And at the time I at the time I had been watching the Muscle Shoals documentary. And was kind of like into this groovy thing that was happening, you know, circa nineteen seventy down there. And I was like, well, here, check this out. Here's what Bill Weathers would do. boom. album that at him and I was like, Well, how would Stevie Wonder or somebody in that lane interpret to make it less boring? And so we did that with a couple songs and like they started here and and came out like I couldn't even imagine. So like that part of it I really loved. And yeah, you know, I was really like glad to again the fame thing was purely like David had met the studio manager down there, Spencer Coates. I called that guy on the th- on the phone thinking like there's no way He's gonna let me come down there and record. Like I don't have a record deal. I don't had any reason or business to be in that like hall of fame, historic Shangri-La of history musically. And dude, I called him and I talked on the phone for like an hour before I ever met him and it was like he was my brother. And again, just one of those things, I'm like wow it was a wow thing and like now he and I are super pipe yeah and I had been working together for about while three years I
0: mean that's gotta be cool just in itself to I, I've never I've never gotten a, to walk into that studio but just like the history of it like how many gold records did they did they pump out in like literally within three four years or five years yeah. yeah I mean it's just it's it's gotta be just like one of those kind of like playing the same guitar at the 3AMs. I mean, just that that feeling of just being in in that
1: moment. That's another thing I'm really hippie about is like the energy of a space. Yeah. And, man, I love playing golf. but I hate walking in a country club. I don't feel, I'm redneck, man. Yeah. like You can't hide. I like to think I'm slightly educated redneck, but like at the end of the day, I like to feel comfortable and I'll walk into a lot of the like prestigious studios on Music Row or around here, and I would just feel like this impending sort of weight on my chest of, like, I don't belong here. These guys think I'm a clown. Even when I would cut demos and, like, the really wild part about that is, like, I'm paying those guys. But, like, that feeling of not belonging or wasn't good enough or, like, the uncomfortable nature of those rooms... Fame was the exact opposite. I walked in, it smelled like my grandma's house. There's a bit of uh there's something in the water. Yeah. There's a lot of ghosts down there that yeah. When I go in there I just I feel inspired, I feel creative, and I feel like no sort of pretense. I don't have to be self aware or self conscious. I can just go down there and make music. And I think that that's really valuable and it's important. To find wherever it is, yeah, that place that you feel at home. I've
0: heard you say that uh, even with guitars. We were up here uh, playing a while back. You probably have it up here somewhere.
1: Yeah, it's at well, It's the F one in the stable there. Yeah,
0: yeah. That that you you know you said that something like you you didn't care what the name of. Oh, on the guitar wise it's like when you when you pick it up is it magic and does it make you want to write a song and does it that's all does it talk to you yeah. and I mean it's that's that's what I'm hearing I mean just walking into a place like that is like that's Spencer. when you had to cut your album
1: yeah right and then from there you know I did that record and uh, fell in love with it so much that you know I told David and Spencer I was like hey I'm kind of thinking about like getting a place down here and like Let's just do this more often, and that you know has morphed into two years later. That I just I mean, I'm about to do it. I just found the house, and it's the beginning of a whole new chapter. But like, I'm really excited because every person that I've taken down there immediately gets it. Yeah, you know, and I'm like, okay, I'm not crazy. I mean, I am crazy, but not with regard to that. Yeah, that's awesome.
0: So, um. Yeah, everybody needs to go listen to the new album. It's it's so good. By the way, I mean you've got you've got some songs on there that you redid. A uh, couple couple of my favorite songs that you've written. Um, Grandma's got a garden. Granny's got a garden. Cameron Marlowe got that. Um, you redid that one.
1: Um, yeah, you know. I did it first. You yeah, you. That's right. Yeah, that's right. That's first. Cameron knows that because since heard... that's Cam singing on that. Um, and that song again is like Cam. I was Cameron's first co-write in, like, 2018 or something like that. And, know that. Yeah. And so, you know, that was one of the early songs we wrote, and it's really about his Grandma. grandmother. Yeah. It's really cool. I love the authenticity of that song, and he crushed it. Um, yeah, songs like that, and then he also cut Fool Me Again, um, which I hear somebody else cut here in town, but I can't say it because it'll jinx it. Um, but I hope that happens. And like a lot of those that had followed me around like, "Hey, Mama, I wrote when I moved here in twenty her twenty favorite song Augusta, and like that song has followed me more than any song because it was like truly, I didn't tell my mom when I moved here, it was very much like a here's kind of the story, and yeah, you know all the every song on that record has you know some sort of very important sentimental value to me, yeah. And I got my buddies to play on.
0: Man, and yeah, it's just I'll say it again, it's just so good. I mean, this, this passion project that you had told me about that you wanted to do before you started doing it. Um, like when it first when it finally came out, you know, it was like I don't I don't know, like this sounds bad. I don't know what I expected, really. Yeah. But I did it I wanted everybody. I didn't expect it to be that. Like and that's and I mean that in a Dead good way. way. Like and I think you kind of you kind of set that up like it was just like, because I didn't either. Yeah, just I mean I was like, you know, was, I, I I found myself when I when it first came out, I found myself like, okay, I'm just gonna listen to it like while I'm while I'm working while I'm doing some other stuff, and then I found
1: myself just like sitting there with like leaned back in the chair, just eyes closed, like listens to the highest compliment you can give a songwriter It is to get somebody to pay attention. Yeah, especially a guy like me because like. Man, I the thing I understood at an early age was like, for whatever reason, there are certain features and tonalities and colors in people's voices that some resonate, some are moving, and some people just they don't have that. A guy like Willie Nelson and a guy like Chris Stapleton, mm. one's a stylist and one's a vocalist. Yeah, Willie Nelson's voice is instantly recognizable but he's a character in the song. Yep. And that's an art form in and of itself that I'm still trying to learn about as a songwriter. But, you know, I, I also understand the reality of, again, people don't, if they don't have any preconceived notion of what they're hearing, usually their ear is attracted to something that's very melodically pleasing. And so this record, it was not that. And it never tried to be, and so like, the people that sit down and pay enough attention and invest enough time to listen. I appreciate that. Because that's like huge, huge compliment. Yeah. It's so good, man. Thanks. Keep doing what you're doing. We're going to try. I'm excited. Yeah. I, I want to look back on that record, you know, in five years and go, oh, like that's so bad. You know, I wanted it to be like my busting in like the egg Man, <laughs> forcing me to go learn about producing the record, whatever the hell that means. But I hope it's like kind of the song that I wrote in 2013 that I look back on and go, I could do that a little better now.
0: Man, that's funny because every song I look back on that I did, I say the same thing. Yeah. It's
1: so bad. (laughs) I'm just saying but that should be a thing that, whether it's writing, singing, recording, whatever, you should always, there's a healthy part of wanting to look back on something and acknowledge the progress. From that point to this, point. yeah. And so, this was my very first sort of all right, I'm going to try to record, I'm going to try to make a record. And, like, make no mistake about it, I want to be recalled. I want to do that thing that he did down at Fame in my own way, you know. And guys like Jay Joyce, um, and guys like Dan Hoff or Dave Cobb or whoever, you know, every producer, there's a craft in that too. Yeah. And so, like, I'm just now entering the chat room of starting to read page one of what that means. But, like, I'm really proud of those songs. Yeah. And so, like, this thing that I fame now is I want to do sort of all of that with people that, to quote my friend Brad Warren, he put it really well. He said, I just want to write with people that I can have a bad day with. So good. And so, like, there's. I'm 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 understanding that like the autonomy of who I get to be creative with, yeah, in that space down there, man, that's really sweet. And Yeah, it's a uh, very very humbled about the opportunity, and also just like fired up to know do it. I can see it. I can see yeah. it in your face, man. Like just like,
0: and the fact that you're able to blend like you you're doing exactly what you want to do without industry or anybody else telling you what to do. You've got the you've got the Keith Whitley in the country that you grew up with and the love of the Matchbox 20 and the pop and the rock and all that and you blend it together so perfectly that it's just it's like it's its, it's
1: a masterpiece man. Thanks man. I'm excited to uh, begin sort of going through that creative process with like young artists and young songwriters and you know, like doing that journey of getting you know getting the song from out of thin air writing it capturing it in the studio, then going and performing it like that's a when you get it right, man, there's no substitute for it. Yeah. It just takes time. And in my case, I can't just I gotta really like know the person and I gotta invest in like our relationship of we're trying to make timeless music. That's of what do you want to do? What I wanna do is make timeless music. Yeah. And so some days it feels like I may just be like Noah out there building the ark, and nobody gives like, a shit. But I care. Yeah. You know, and as long as like I get to wake up and do something that I love, that's it. Yep. You know, that's I'm cool with that. Amen, man.
0: Well, uh, to wrap up, I always like to end asking this question. So you've had multiple number ones, multiple hits, you've had multiple awards, you've toured all over the world with Luke Holmes. Um, you you're doing what you want to do now you've you've made not just a passion project come to life but a, a hell of a passion project it sounds great all of this you've done go back to eight year old Robert and what advice would you give yourself now knowing what you know
1: I've never been asked a question like that you're welcome I would, I would. Uh, the advice I would give would be to never question your intuition as it relates to, like, whatever your passion is. Now, some people don't recognize or have, like, a longer time or a harder time sort of arriving at that, but, like, I knew at an early age that's what I wanted to do, and it took me a relatively small amount of time, but, like, A lot of internal conflict, a lot of insecurity, and a lot of self-doubt, and a lot of mental unhealth to get to a point of going, no, this is who I am, this is what I believe in, this is what I'm passionate, and this is what I know, not think, this is what I know I should be doing. Yeah, When you have that, I think you should be unapologetic. Treat people well. Be a kind human, but do not ever apologize or make excuses for, like, why you're not pursuing that. That would be the only thing. Love that. Dude, it's been fun, man. That may be like, hey, man, maybe you don't dream so much in your
0: 20s. <laughs> yeah, be careful on Broadway.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. Yeah. You can pick up some good and bad habits. Yeah, yeah. you sure can. Well, man, thank you for sitting down. This invite has
0: been awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. We've been telling you to this for hours. Yeah. I know it's going to take me like all of like 30 seconds. So, all right, everybody, this has been another episode of Stories Beyond the Songs with Chris Blair and Rob Williford. Go uh, check out his album and follow him, robwilliford.com. And we'll see you next time. This has been an episode of Stories Behind the Songs with Chris Blair. For more information after the show, head over to chrisblair.com. That's where you can find information on these episodes, trailer notes, video links, all kinds of great stuff. Also, make sure to leave us a great rating on iTunes. Like and follow us on Spotify, YouTube, wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave us a comment. Let us know what you think. I really hope that you think this show is awesome and we really appreciate the love and support. I promise to keep gathering great content and continuing to sit down with more amazing songwriters and artists as we grow. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for the support. We'll see you next time.